You are listening to Sheep Might Fly, a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Rayner Roberts. Our current serial is Musketeer Space. Can I just say, I have been really enjoying revisiting this book. Um, it's a long time since I wrote it now. It was 2014 was when I was first set out on this very strange adventure of writing chapter by chapter to a blog, uh, of setting up my Patreon, all that sort of thing. It took, I think, about a year and a half to write this book in public. Uh, the, the technique of following chapter by chapter from the original Three Musketeers is the reason it's so long. But it is, it's just so, I think because it was written so quickly and with such a um, really specific agenda of just getting the chapter out and having fun with it and trying to make world building that made the story sense now it was in a futuristic space setting. It was such a fun thing to do and I poured so much of myself into it and the things that I love in stories, which makes it quite an enjoyable reading experience for me now. Um, I suppose in many ways that is why we write, because we're trying to make books exist that somebody else hadn't got around to writing for us. Uh, but I'm glad I'm able to read my own work. I'm thinking now we're heading down towards the final stretch of this, which is 12 chapters, so it's not nothing. That's still like three months of the podcast. But now that we are getting close to the end, I'm thinking about what else I want to do with these books. I'd really like to do a double paperback release. It's something I've always wanted to do with these because it is too long to be a real book. Uh, it is... <laughs> It is nearly the length of, of two books, and that's why it's only ever had a hardback and an ebook release, because there's it's the glue problem, right? You you just can't have a paperback that big, uh, unless you are George R. R. Martin, and even he divides his books into multiple volumes uh, when it comes to the paperback. So, so there's that, and I've got to say, having gone through this file chapter by chapter as I'm recording the podcast... I am so sorry to anybody who's bought them hardback over the years. There are so many typos. I feel really bad about it. This was my first uh, self real, real self-publishing experience on my own, and I did not bring enough of help in at all. So when I do a paperback release, when I can sort out covers, maybe sometime next year, I will be releasing the version I have been editing as I go while recording this podcast. So many typos. Yeah. So um, if you are thinking of purchasing uh, a hard copy of this, uh, I don't know that I will be revising the hardback. We'll see. I, I probably can do it uh, with all the text revised. So maybe hold off on it for a little while um and if you're a somebody who would prefer to have it in two paperbacks rather than a whole big giant book then um you know again hold off on it uh, on the other hand if you really like having early copies of books that you know might appreciate in value because it's the version where the author didn't do enough editing be my guest go go grab those books now I'd also add that if you want the ebook, uh, it's one of those, and has always been one of those um, 
bonus downloads that any of my Patreon supporters at any level can download straight away, along with piles of other books. Uh, so that's probably still the cheapest way to uh, to get hold of that that ebook. But you know, they're ebooks; they're never that expensive. Okay. Thank you very much for listening, and now I'm going to read you the actual story. Chapter 50 Sunrise at the Siege of Truth Athos was wrecked after his private call to his former current dead husband's sister-in-law. Dana was equally wrecked after the conversation with Conrad, followed by the emotional tennis match that was her call to Maman. Every silence between their words was heavy with the loss of her papa and how Dana hadn't been there, not only for the disaster on Gascon Station and the medical fallout that came after, but also the hard work that was going on right now to restore the station and save the community. They were all so far away. Truth was technically closer to freedom, but... There were whole hours, entire days, when Dana's chaotic life had distracted her, so sufficiently she almost forgot that her papa was dead and her childhood home in ruins. Because of the sun-kissed, it always came back to them. Even with the good news to share about her promotion, your papa would be so proud, he always believed you would make it. To the rank and status of proper musketeer, Dana felt a stab of guilt, as if her mamma knew that Dana did not spend nearly enough time thinking about home. When they emerged from their respective privacy booths, Athos and Dana looked at each other and both said, You look like shit, in unison. They calculated the time and decided that since they were officially off duty until this meeting with the Sunkist, they could afford two hours to get filthy stinking drunk, and another six hours to sleep, if sleep was even possible, in the basic bunks Treville had assigned them on the bastion, before slapping on all the sobriety patches in the solar system, and pretending to be respectable members of the royal fleet. It was not the most responsible decision Dana had ever made, and she was well aware of her hypocrisy at enabling Athos in his self-destructive behaviour, but damn, she needed it. They woke up tangled together in a single bunk, fully clothed and feeling like death warmed up. Why didn't we use the sobriety patches before we went to sleep? Dana groaned, with her head pressed underneath a fresh printed pillow, so stiff it might give her a paper cut. Wouldn't have slept if sober, Athos grumbled. After a brief tussle in which they discovered that old age and treachery was indeed superior to youth when it came to fighting over who got to use the sonic shower first, who knew that Athos had quite so many elbows? They dressed themselves in flight suits and jackets. Dana still had the one from Aramis, while Athos had to suffer a newly printed garment after some sort of mishap at Dovecote Red that he would not discuss. They buzzed each other's hair short and stepped back to examine the results in the mirror. 
The pride of the royal fleet, Athos said, with grim satisfaction. Dana trod on his foot. Don't be bitter. We scrub up okay. The first day of intergalactic diplomacy was dull. Athos and Dana were relegated to a side gallery, where they could observe and be called upon if necessary. It was not necessary. The regents, the cardinal and Amiral Treville, sat together at a central table. Surrounding them were what turned out to be a team of expert linguists, xenobiologists and codebreakers, all there to aid communication between the Sunkist and the representatives of the human solar system. Three Mandaki were present among the alien experts, presumably because they were aliens themselves, though Dana was not sure how that meant they had any perspective on the psychology of the Sunkist. Still, they had brought a hefty array of translation units with them. Five minutes before communications formally opened, a messenger arrived and had private words with Cardinal Richelieu before climbing the short stairs to join Athos and Dana in the side gallery. Dana was not even surprised that it turned out to be Agent Rosne Cho, with her usual sweep of hair tucked under a black raven cap and a black flight suit to match. Dana was used to the idea now that Roe might turn up anywhere at any time. "'What are you doing here?' Dana asked, nevertheless. "'Who's in command of the Frenzy Kenzie?' "'Classified,' said Roe, placing a finger to her lips. "'And also, I don't remember.' A sabre, I think. Jussac? That's worse than you, said Dana in horror. I'll take that as a compliment, preened Roe. The Frenzy Kenzie is a musketeer supplies transport. Why would they put a sabre in command? Roe lifted one shoulder in a lazy shrug. Perhaps the Regents has finally accepted that the solar system would be much more efficient if the church ran everything. Let me guess, Athos drawled. You're in here because you're another member of the I have intimate knowledge of my Lord de Winter club. Rose smirked as she took a seat a little way from them both. Well, she said, not as intimate as you, as it turns out. Athos glared at her. Rose stared back, her mouth curved up, and the two of them faced off against each other in a long, silent challenge. The only thing that stopped Dana beating her head against the wall was that she was starting to worry about brain damage. It didn't get better once the sun-kissed delegation appeared on the bright digital screens of the meeting room largely because they refused to communicate in any known language. There were sounds and bursts of light, and some kind of static chatter. The experts all scrambled to identify the language, but it was harder than they had imagined. Now we know something new about the sun-kissed, Athos said quietly as he observed the chaos in the main gallery. Yes, they're assholes. Roe replied. 
Athos gave her a look that was half surprise, half appreciation. Dana stifled a laugh. How do you figure that? They speak our language, said Athos. We know they do. Or, <sighs> my lord isn't the only one. The last war saw at least forty or fifty spies dropped among the fleet itself, and seeded in the various planetary communities. That's the ones we know about. They looked like us, and they damned well spoke like us. They can do it any time they like. The Admiral and Car the Cardinal were both active during the last war, Roe observed. They're well aware of this. Must be why Her Eminence is twitching so much, said Athos. Yeah, she's big on the value of time, said Roe. Wasting time is up there with elementalism on Her Eminence's list of personal hates. It's not a waste, though, is it? Dane amused. Surely it's better for us to learn how to communicate with them properly, if we're going to have any kind of long-term diplomacy with their people. Athos and Roe exchanged a weary look. She's so young, Athos said, conversationally. Tell me about it, said Roe. Dana was indignant. I don't need you two ganging up on me. You're only cranky because you know I'm right. Six days later, Dana was prepared to admit that she was wrong. She still believed that it was important that humans learn to communicate with the sun-kissed in their own language. On the other hand, was there seriously no way to hurry the process up? Some progress had been made. The last two days had featured more muttered, excitable conversations among the translation team, and less of the glazed eyes and desperate panic that had characterised the early sessions. For Dana, Athos and Roe, it had been an interminably dull week, in which lights flashing on screens and experts getting excited about sound frequencies were not the focus of their attention. No, their focus was on the tournament of noughts and crosses between the three of them, and the elaborate system of rewards, forfeits and handicaps they had devised to make the game more of a challenge. Dana might or might not have lost too many matches because of the deeply unfair lose a mark off the board if you smile at a cute text from your non-boyfriend in exile rule. She was dangerously close to earning a dread truth or dare forfeit when Treville interrupted them. Fruit break already, boss? Athos asked, not even looking up from where he was sprawled on the bench. You spoil us. Treville looked at the three of them with a mixture of impatience and resignation. I don't suppose you are paying attention to today's work? We did try, said Ro, who had a startled schoolchild expression on her face, obviously less accustomed to Amaral Treville taking notice of her, let alone disapproving of her behaviour. But the effects of paying attention are so similar to the effects of a migraine and... Yes, I get the picture. What about you, D'Artagnan? I wasn't napping, Dana ventured. What was it you particularly wanted our feedback on, boss? It was the first time she had called Treville boss since becoming a musketeer, and it sent a little thrill through her. Treville crossed her arms. We've been making progress. 
The latest breakthrough in communications has revealed something of our adversary's motives. Athos looked at least slightly alert. What about truth? They've promised us they'll open a channel to the planet to prove the majority of the population are still alive down there. That's good, said Dana, isn't it? That depends, drawled Roe, on what it cost. Treville flicked her gaze in Roe's direction and nodded. They want something from us as a gesture of good faith. Is it something within our power? Athos asked, all serious. Treville blew out a breath. They believe we are harbouring a criminal who's been condemned to death in absentia by their government. They're prepared to destroy us planet by planet to get him back into their custody. Athos frowned. So why can't we just... And then he paused. Dana was way ahead of him. Her own awkward pause joined his to join, to become an epic silence of embarrassment. It couldn't be. Could it? Holy shit, said Ro, and started laughing maniacally. I guess you two are here for a good reason after all. We don't know for certain, said Treville. There are roadblocks to identifying this criminal. Athos squared his shoulders. Show us what you have, and D'Artagnan and I will see if it's who we all think it is. Shut the hell up, Agent Cho. It's not funny. It really is kind of funny, Ro gasped, because, come on, who else is it going to be? Milord Vaniel de Winter stepped off the matigo and into a cluster of assistants and bureaucrats, ready to inform him all about the work he needed to catch up on, between the space dock and Prime House, the centre of government on Valour. He did love politics, but, oh, there were times when the paperwork seriously got in the way of being a covert assassin. Vaniel was like a comfortable, finely tailored suit. Milord had something of a soft spot for this identity, who was kinder and wittier than most of the personalities he'd developed over the years. More ambitious than Linton Gray, the soft-spoken diplomatic aide and covert religious terrorist. More clever and careful than Slate the Raven, an occasional kidnapper. Certainly saner than the wildly destructive Winter, who existed mostly as a hallucinogenic virus inside the head of his enemies. The mission prickled under his skin. A constant distraction as he signed forms, made decisions, and agreed to meetings he probably would never attend. First Minister Beautru wishes to receive you at your earliest convenience, said Nonya a flat-faced and humourless young woman who was excellent at scheduling but hell to share an office with. Milord missed the snarky, glitter-strewn irreverence of Kitty and her space ponies. There were many reasons for which he wished to murder Dana D'Artagnan with his own bare hands, but depriving him of his favourite assistant was high on that list. Back at the office, he said firmly, 
We'll sort out a timetable for essential appointments. There was a government-issue skimmer waiting for him to transport him across town to Prime House. Milord hesitated. If he got in, several of these hangers-on would pile in with him, so as to keep him signing and agreeing to appointments. He hadn't intended to go to Prime House today, not with a duchess to kill. As he thought rapidly of how to express his wish to travel alone and unaccompanied, a familiar voice broke into the buzz. Vaniel will be riding with me. Affairs of state are all very well, but family comes first. The Countess of Clarick strode towards her brother-in-law, as if she expected anyone and everyone to leap out of her path. She wasn't wrong. B, my lord said faintly. Vaniel, darling, she said, kissing him on each cheek and then tucking her arm into his. Come along. I have my own skimmer waiting, and it will give us a chance to talk. He allowed her to steer him away. It solved the problem of government distractions. What it didn't solve was the problem of a sister-in-law. One did not take a sister-in-law along on assassinations. Once they were both comfortably seated in the padded interior of the De Winter skimmer, B flicked a few autopilot options. The skimmer arced up into the air and B leaned back to place her booted feet on the dashboard. Time we talked, brother dear. I've had some fascinating chats with a musketeer since we last spoke. What are you talking about? my lord asked, in his usual careless drawl. Musketeers are like drones, sweetness. That's like trying to have a conversation with a random piece of palace furniture. This one had scads of interesting things to say, said B, her mouth hard. Vaniel, I think it's time you and I talked about family loyalty. Well, this was unlikely to be pleasant. Thanks for listening to Sheep Might Fly. Uh, this podcast was recorded on Palawar land. I acknowledge and pay respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the traditional owners and continuing custodians of Lutruwita, Tasmania. Sheep Might Fly is produced and edited by Andrew Finch. You can sign up to my author newsletter for updates. Follow me on Twitter at TansyRR. And if you like this podcast, consider supporting me at Patreon, where you can receive all kinds of bonus rewards, early ebooks, and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. See you next week.